Well, welcome all you wiretappers back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I got my good friend Camillus Cam Robinson. Welcome, Cam. How you doing, Gary? Good to see you. Well, is it cold up there in Chicago? It's colder than hell down here. Yeah, it is. It was in the uh, it was in the teens earlier. I might get up into the mid twenties today. <laughs> I see your dress more. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Anyhow, we're going to talk about the big tuna, Joe Biders, Anthony Accardo today, and and. Cam and I both stumbled across this little story, and I mentioned it to him, and he'd already knew something about it, and it's the little red sports car story. And this is really fascinating, I think. In the le- and during the 50s, Tony Accardo had the, the perfect job. He was a beer salesman. I remember as a kid, guys wanted to get a job with the Pearl Brewery or on the brewery truck. Because you got all the free beer you wanted to drink, but Ricardo <laughs> had it for other reasons. Of course, you know he was an outfit guy. He was he was the boss at the time, and and he had a lot of connections with Chicago bars and liquor distributors mm-hmm. and, and places to buy beer. Wouldn't you say, Cam? That's where you make the pickups. It's where you pick up the cash. <laughs> That's where you pick up the cash, man. That's where the <laughs> sports gambling was going on. That's the right. bookies hung out. That's where the deals were made, and and that's where that's where the gamblers were. That's that's where the money was. And he made sixty five thousand dollars a year as a beer salesman, traveling around. He he got he also got. Let me look at my notes here. He got five cents a case on all Foxhead beer he sold, and so he was working for this company. It wasn't really a mob company particularly, but he was he was the mob guy representing them. And it probably was more of a mob company we realized. He deducted his expenses and uh, like car expenses and other expenses, depreciated out his car. But what's interesting is his car was a little red sports car, but it wasn't just any little red sports car. Was it? What was it? Cam, it, I know you're the sports you know, car a- guy. As a car guy, you know, I know you're a motorcycle guy, but so for me, the, the 300 SL Mercedes Gullwing, we know it's a Gullwing because Gary, I, I wondered for years, Gary found a great quote from the judge talking about the up and down doors, but 300, 300 SL Gullwing was the first supercar. I sat in one at an auction. It's got a steering wheel. It tilts forward because it's so hard to get into. So you can imagine these guys in their in their expensive suits stepping over this wide this wide beam to get into this car with the doors all going up, and uh, it was a race car in in everything except name. They used them to race. The handling was tremendous. This was the quintessential. It was like driving around selling beer in the equivalent of a Lamborghini. <laughs> <That's> interesting. <laughs> Richard Ogilvy, who was the sheriff for one for a while in Cook County, and, and he was an investigator, and he did some investigation on this, and he went to uh, 3,500 local tavern owners, and he never found anybody that ever talked to Antonio Cardo. <laughs> That's the name of police work, though, for the day. For a local <laughs> Really? He, he deducted... Uh, $3,994 in depreciation and oil and gas expenses for this Mercedes. It'll pay for the car. You know, and Accardo, his trial was, uh, it was really interesting. He he was, he had, you know, succeeded Capone, so he was the man. And he had always, he knew how they got Capone, right? Income tax. So he had always showed some income and depreciation and some deductions like normal people do. He wanted to make it look as normal as possible. Of course, he lived way beyond those means, but but maybe not like Capone did. Hell, Capone, you know, he had these 
uh, the silver diamond encrusted belt buckles that he gave out and then you know, hotel and homes and well i guess he didn't he had a big home down in florida and and he just did a lot of other real ostentatious things that ricardo yeah. didn't particularly do he did have a home in palm springs later on in life but this this mercedes was was pretty ostentatious at the time what would that car be worth today so now they go for about a million two wow. million one million two just went at auction Think if you could find the one that Tony Accardo actually owned. If you could trace, Jay, if you could trace that VIN. Jay Leno's got a red one. Looks something like it. Looks something like it. But yeah, they are, it is a tremendous car. If you could trace Tony Accardo's, that would just be an extra, maybe an extra hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Oh, or more. I tell you what. I wonder how you do that. You know how you trace those VINs? I know guys do that. They go back and find their high school car that they had. I've heard of that. If you went down to you could probably go downtown to the uh, registration road vehicles and, and maybe track it down. I, I have a hard time believing that the Cardo had too many legitimate records, but because that car was in a court case, I'm, I'm sure it would be somewhere. You might be able to find the VIN in that old court yeah. case. And it used real uh, mob fans up there in Chicago and Cook County that like to research. I say, go find those, see if you can find those court records. There, there's not a lot of those cars out there. And get that VIN and then start trying to trace it or send that VIN to me. I'll try to trace it, at least whatever I can right. do on the Internet. I'm not going to travel around the country, but uh, it'd be <laughs> worth it actually travel around the country if you thought you could find it. But even if you found it, even if they didn't know who it was, you know, it'd be hard to buy. Oh, they just yeah. don't go up for sale. Those No, no, no. People get them, hold on to them. Cardo's famous for never spending a night in jail. In mm -hmm. that trial, he, they put up a pretty good defense. It was a typical Chicago defense. Let me take a look at here. Some pretty good quotes. He got Al Pilato in there, who at the yeah, time would have been what? What would he have been at the time in 1956? He was pretty high-ranking lieutenant down in uh, Chicago Heights. A lot of the Chicago Heights crew. Frank uh, Frank Laporte was running things in Chicago Heights, and uh, Al Pilato and a bunch of guys. Joe Colo uh Joe uh, uh, guy named Joe Costello. Uh, these guys all all were witnesses in this trial. So basically the whole Chicago Heights group, because a lot of the bars that Accardo was supposedly selling to were down in between Kankakee and, and uh, Calumet City, okay. south of south of Chicago. Now, then that makes sense why Pilato would would be the one that came yeah. in. He, he at the time, he had been the uh, president of the local number five for the International Hot Carriers, Builders and Common Laborers Union. Yeah. And and he claimed that he worked with. He was a leg man for Accardo, a which is why you didn't see Accardo in these joints. He sent, uh, Pilato said, I used to go out and do things in these joints and take bar napkins and, you know, little giveaway items and uh, promotional things for him. And uh, <laughs> he said, and he even remarked that he was in a particular liquor store, the Park Inn Liquors in Calumet City. And he saw Cardo come in with Jackie Cerrone. You know, that's how far back Jackie Cerrone goes. He had to be yeah. a really young guy. He, he must have been like driving a Cardo. A Cardo, how old would he have been then? Yeah. Uh, that was in, so he was in his early 50s. He was born in 1906. So in the late 50s, he was he just turned 50 driving this car. And so, yeah, he would have been in his 50s. Cerrone would have been, he was born so in his, in his late 30s, early 40s. Okay, yeah, he would have been a young guy. So he was he'd been going around with Ricardo since he yeah. was a really young man, carried on all the way to the rest of his life as as yeah, long right. as Ricardo was alive. He was Jackie Cerrone was his guy. That was a long time relationship. I never really thought about that. I know look at, at later on in the seventies and 
when he's sitting up at uh, Nor the Mayo's restaurant, Mayo's Norwood restaurant, I think, and he'd sit there, meet with Paul Rica before he died, and meet with other people. Jackie Cerrone was was often noted as being the guy that took him there and maybe stayed there, yeah. or maybe came back and got him, and, and so he was with him a long time. Oh yeah, he was his, his right hand man in that Elmwood Park crew. Yeah, at the time, Pilato named off his partners in his jukebox cigarette vending company business. So he had a reason to have people going in and out of these bars too. Right. Were Frank Laporte, like you said, a guy named James Ross, Frank Franz, Mike Roberts, Marty Puccini, Sam Giovanni, and Dominic and William Palermo. I don't really know any yeah. of those guys. You know anything about Toots, those guys? Yeah, Toots Palermo was, uh, he went down to Big Sting. Dominic was uh, Toots Palermo, but there was a lot of trade back and forth over uh in in between italy and chicago heights a lot of heroin trade and uh they had a you know a pipeline with stolen cars to through um, altopa but there was a, a lot of connections to sicily through chicago uh chicago heights those were all big rigs in the chicago heights parade of mob guys coming in and saying no he was a beer salesman <laughs> yes really there was another guy named joseph l costello who yeah. was connected uh, i don't remember that name either you remember that name another another guy in the chicago heights he, he got up there and, and verified that uh verified that, that picardo had been a, a beer salesman down there that he had been in the uh the bars in the chicago heights in calumet city and there's a john macaluso who was the president mm -hmm. of the kankakee distributing company and head of the chicago heights liquor distributing company and and he said he saw uh, a Cardo and this Joseph Costello many times coming in the sports car on a beer selling mission. <laughs> you know, to, to run an organization like that in the 50s and 60s, you would have had to be on the arm. You know? When I asked about the little red sports car, uh, Pilato quipped something about, you know, he sold a lot of beer out of that little red car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not out of the trunk, though. <laughs> now, I saw a picture years ago of a Cardo's maybe granddaughter or niece or something driving a, a, a what was called a board ward isabella which is another little german car a little german coupe so he might have had a, a, a predilection for german cars huh he might have yeah Interesting. and back then that was unusual that was oh that yeah was really unusual everybody you know if you're gonna have a sports car you probably have a corvette more than likely oh, yeah. if you had money and if you didn't have so much money you might get one of those little english sports cars like you got, right right you got an mg little mg MG yeah. or Triumph or something. They weren't very expensive but at the right. time. Of course, you had to work on them every day. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite a mechanic, Gary. Let me, yeah. let me tell you. I bet you are by now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, during the time, my research tells me that he was paying paying taxes on income that he said came from miscellaneous sources, <laughs> which ain't bad, <laughs> uh, of about a million dollars between 40 and 55 and that justified his $500,000 mansion in uh, River Forest at the time and, and vacations, and lavish vacations. He was, I think he must have been a golfer. He liked to, because he ended up in Palm Springs every winter. I wish I could find some miscellaneous sources. <laughs> <laughs> he did this after people started pushing him back in the day as he was coming up about, well, where do you work? You know, federal agents pushing him on where do you work? And he remembered what happened to Capone. And so that's when he 
gotten the liquor distributing the beer beer sales business uh, yeah it was, was you know uh, capone and nitty and jake guzik all went down for you know nitty and, and guzik were in for 18 months but capone was and they nailed and ricardo was scared of that he sold his house shortly after this and moved into a smaller it's still a pretty pretty ostentatious house but not like that one in river forest that you were going to sell it was just what was that twenty four thousand square feet or something just insane that had. and and the appeal says the government introduced evidence that he had an employment contract with premium sales and he was reimbursed by the Foxhead Brewery for contract payments to the defendant. But the defendant, Tony Accardo, was unknown and unseen at premium's office at any times by premium's office supervisor or any of the salesmen that were in there. You know, those guys got in some trouble for stepping up in front of that court and saying, no, I don't know this guy at all. I've, I've never seen him around the office. Or by premium sales bookkeeper who saw the salesman every day. <laughs> and there were six other premium salesmen that attended salesman's meetings and salesman drivers and sub distributors. And nobody could ever say they ever saw Tony Accardo around there. <laughs> there's, there's a scene in The Sopranos where Tony, uh, Tony Soprano has to show that he's working. He's worried about a tax trial himself. And he shows up at the, at the uh, uh, sanitation place that he's supposedly a, a manager at and they, they don't recognize it. They don't know who he is. And then the owner comes in and says, Oh no, no, he, it's okay. It's okay. He, uh, he's, here's his office over here. And they turned into a storage closet and all, but nobody, yeah. nobody knew who he was. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the time I thought it was a little bit hokey, uh, but it, it, it was kind of dramatic in a way and kind of funny is when several of his guys, he got them no show jobs at a construction job site through the, you know, labor racketeering. And I've heard of that same way with the, mm -hmm. the Teamsters and no show jobs or minimal work jobs down on the truck yeah. docks there in, the, in Kansas City. Laborers too. But his guys come and, and they don't work. They take folding chairs in order to show up the job and they sit around and sun themselves and smoke and joke all day long. I, I thought it was old bit much. They get in some fight with, you know, the, the regular laborers are mad as hell over this. Which, yep. <laughs> so I, I, I don't think that was based in reality there that for a no show job, they would just wouldn't show up at all. And no, I think they were, that was a bit, uh, that was a bit over the top trying to drive home the point. <laughs> but that's been, you know, that whole no-show job. I just heard a story about a guy here in Kansas City that uh, when he got out of the penitentiary, you know, I'm saying in the uh, 80s, he was going to have to show a job, be, you know, continue to be supervised for a while. And a local part-time or a local car dealer gave him a job at minimum wage and pay, you know, cut a check for him every week. And they did this for two years and the guy never showed up. Never had to show up, but the car dealer got a really juicy contract with another big company to provide some kind of, of uh, he had a, a body shop. It was a buy here, pay here car lot, and he had a body shop connected to that and a tow truck. So he got a tow contract with a bunch of other people that, that he normally wouldn't have got. He also got a deal for a couple of, of new car dealerships in the city to provide all the body shop supplies. So he went someplace to a distributor, bought them and then took a little piece off the top and, and right. sent up those. So that, that was a deal. That's a, you know, it's just such a common thing with the mob. They, they ran the laborers. They ran the, uh, the city government. So all those guys had no show jobs on the streets and sanitation or, you know, the, the, the El Palado was a big wig in the laborers. And, uh, you know, they, several of the campos were, were, were chiefs of the labor regime. They, they yeah, who else didn't? Uh, when, when Joey Lombardo 
Yeah, Lombardo. It's supposed to be somebody's driver up there for quite a while. Yeah. And uh, that finally, um, some somebody exposed that. I don't remember how it was exposed now. Do you? They purged all the uh, corruption from from the laborers. I mean, it was a major it was a major effort, and, and they had to fight to get to, to get them out. I know uh, uh, one of the guys who was high up in laborers is still around, so I don't like saying this I don't like to say people's names, but I mean, they they really had to work hard to get these guys out and, and bring in national attention. The government was putting pressure on them, and all they finally forced the forced them out. Yeah, um, Pilato was was dead by that time, but uh, it was it was quite a deal. Oh, yeah, that's that's for sure. I know, like I said, I know there was a ton of Teamsters jobs here in the Kansas City mm-hmm. that they, they either did little or, or didn't show. Mainly they showed up but did very little on the docks. And, and the foreman knew that he couldn't push them. I talked to one foreman. Oh, yeah. He, he tried to push this one guy, a guy named Inzarello, Beans Inzarello. Uh, can he remember his first name? And, and, and what Beans did is, is he was part of a crew of mob guys that flew to other cities back in the 60s and robbed grocery stores back then you could rob a grocery store on payday and you could hit a five-figure amount in in the late 60s early 70s and it it was that was a lucrative business but in in between times he was working on the dock at a big freight company and and this guy just wouldn't do anything he'd show up but he just wouldn't do anything and i talked to a guy later years later there was his supervisor and and he said, I tried to push him. He said that, you know, he even threatened to kill me one time. <laughs> he said, I finally, you know, I, I couldn't get rid of him. So I just finally gave up. And juiced in. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting life being in the mob and having those connections. Said, That's one reason people say, oh, they don't hurt anybody else. But, you know, in some ways they do. You know, think if you're a guy yeah. working on the dock there. And, and you're thinking, well, this guy doesn't do anything, you know, give me his money. I'll work hard, you know, or yeah. divide it up among a few of us. Get, let us get a little more money and you'll get more work out of us. But they watch that guy sit on his ass or they don't even know about the ones that don't show up. So, right, right. And then Robin the pension and the union yeah. where they do things like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, they really couple of those unions I mean, the, the laborers and the teamsters and, and, and the dock workers, they just really ripped through there. They they're a number of them. Yeah. And, and even businesses, it, it gives some businesses an unfair economic advantage because they oh, yeah. can put pressure on to do that. Now, many times the pressure they put on somebody who bends to that pressure, they got their own little secrets going They're They're sports gamblers and, you know, maybe in hock or, or go in and out of hock to the mob and different things like this. We had a, Met a guy once that you always think these kind of square john businessmen are not part of it and then you get surprised so a guy named uh, what was the name of his arrow truck sales it was a big time big truck sales and this was like their vice president or something this was a pretty high-ranking person and we did a operation on a bunch of Really, they were art thieves is what they were. They were high-end boosters. They stole elite crystals. What's the other kind? There's other kind of crystal that people steal. They went to a little museum up in Omaha and and got a Remington painting. They went to some other smaller museums around and, and got some paintings. And when we took down, they were mob connected. They mainly fenced through the mob. And when we took him down was one guy started talking and he told us about, he sold this one famous painting. I think it was a Remington um, out of a museum to this guy who was the exec at truck sales, went down to his office and there it is on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> That's press. This, this side by side in and out overlapping of mm-hmm. the mob and 
what seems like on the surface legitimate businessmen is is always fascinating to me. It's always interesting, yeah. and it's all and it's there. Well, it's it's now it's all legalized, and corporations have taken over all of it. <laughs> yeah. so. Well, that's a uh, interesting discussion, Cam. Uh, <laughs> driving that little race car around. Driving that little red car around. I just, um, um, I'm impressed with him because you, like me, I like my cars and I like motorcycles mm-hmm. too. I, I had a Porsche Boxster for a short period of time. There you go. It was a lot of fun. You've got your, what is your car? Your little, little 66 uh, MG Midget. Midget, yeah. Well, those things are small, aren't they? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's not as easy to get into as it was when I was 16, I'll tell you that. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> Legs don't work the same at 45. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I see one of these cars, I, I think I want one. And me and my friend Steve St. John go to uh, every Saturday night. There's a kind of unofficial local people with cars usually restored cars show up mm-hmm. in a parking lot over here. And then he knows several of them over there. And, and I, I meet him over there and just go around and talk to those guys and, and look at these cars. And I always want one, but when you start talking to him, you find out, Oh yeah, I put $110,000 in that 56 Chevy. I put $75,000 in that, you know, 65 Corvette. And, and that's after I paid 20,000 to buy it. <laughs> no comments. <laughs> really? No comments. <laughs> I just think you know I like them, but not that much. It, I wouldn't take care of it anyhow. I, I like to use things. I don't like to just look at them. <laughs> All right, Cam. Well, thanks a lot for working with me on this. I think it's an interesting, fun little story, which we try to bring to you guys out there in uh, YouTube and and uh, podcast land. So uh, don't forget, I like motorcycles. We just talked about. Look out for motorcycles. Uh, Cam's got a book coming out. Tell me the name of that book. The uh, it is it is Swan Song, the real Chicago mob wife. It is about uh, Lisa Swan, the uh, wife of Frank Calabrese Jr. It's talking about what it's like behind the, the doors of uh, of what goes on in the mob in the mob household. Not not from point of view of a mobster, but from the point of view of of the family and and what effect it has on on the the, the wife, the mother, the children. And it, it's really a, a pretty raw look, kind of like what we were just talking about. I mean, it's it, it really it, it really takes a toll on family members, and I think this is a pretty interesting look. Uh, Lisa Swan tells a hell of a story, and so I think it'll be, it'll be something. Chicago Swan Song is going to be in the book. Thanks, Cam. Chicago Swan Song, and and if you've got a problem with PTSD or you got a friend or relative that does. Look on the VA website and get that hotline because there's help available for you, former service people. Thanks a lot, Cam. Absolutely.